0: Well, we're continuing to look this morning at passages that describe the hope that we can find only in Jesus Christ. And you know, thinking back as to why I decided to preach this series, um, I think there were really two reasons that I decided this is what we needed to consider. First of all, it's pretty pretty obvious if you pay attention to the calendar, right? Good Friday and Easter are coming, and it does us well to spend a little extra time. Considering just what Jesus accomplished on the cross and as he walked out of that tomb. Uh, The second thing that led me down this road was we'd been singing a song for a while called Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. And, And the first verse in particular really, really just kind of motivated me to want to preach this. It says, What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? that our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. And, And I think we just too often lose hold of that. Not that that we often come to the place where we would deny that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. But but we get to the place where I think we might be ready to sing, what is our hope in life and death? Christ. But we're not always ready to say this, what is my only hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. And looking looking for other sources of hope, other sources than Christ leads us to despair and desperation. We we reach a place of hopelessness if we look for hope anywhere but Christ. Even if we don't reach hopelessness ourselves, we become useless to those who have. We're unable to to give them anything to offer them in their time of despair if we don't recognize that Christ alone is our only hope. Just last week, a, a CDC survey of American youth from the fall of 2021 was released, and it was a a big deal in the news for a few days. Maybe you heard about it. I don't know. Mostly, the big thing was that it found that roughly 60% of young women surveyed felt persistently sad and hopeless, 60%. That number was closer to 40% 10 years before. So in 10 years, now that was 2021, there was a lot of hopelessness going around, but 60% 60% saying on a, on a survey that they felt hopeless. That's not good news. That's terrible news. And the news spent a lot of time trying to determine the reason for the hopelessness and generally using that number to prop up whatever the cause of the day was, like they do with every survey, right? But it, but if we're singing with honestly, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone We should hear this news, and and you know what the first thought should be in our head? Our first thought should be, I need to go out and share the gospel with more young ladies because they're hopeless, and Christ alone is our only hope in life and death. That's what we should hear when we hear that news. Just in case that wasn't your first thought when you heard that this morning, we're going to dive into Romans chapter 3 and remind us of why it ought to be why we ought to be able to really believe and really live every moment and and think every thought in light of the fact that Christ alone is our hope in life and death. But before we we dig into the verses in chapter 3, I want to set them up the way Paul did. Paul wrote two chapters before he got to chapter 3, and I'm not even going to start in verse 1 in chapter 3. So we want to kind of set up Paul's argument. Paul starts in chapter 1 of Romans And he explains that that God, especially in verse 18, that God has clearly revealed himself to all mankind in nature. It says, even the Godhead is obvious in what God has revealed. But man has rejected God's revelation of himself. It says, man fails to acknowledge God as God, and man fails to give God thanks. Even though he should see God in his creation, He doesn't. He refuses to say he's God. He refuses to give him thanks. And then God gives him over to that rebellion. And he just spirals downhill in a spiral of sin. That's Romans 1. But Paul knows there's one group of people that will think Paul's talking about everybody else. And that's his Jewish brothers and sisters. They're going to think, yeah, that's the way it is for everybody else. But we get God, don't we? We get him. And so Paul speaks to them. In Romans 2, they think God came to us, called us his people, and gave us these great commandments, this law, so we're okay. And Paul says, no, you're not. You're in trouble too, because having the law is no benefit to you if you disobey the law. And everybody disobeys it. Creating a religion around rules is no good unless you keep the rules, right? So instead of making people righteous, this law that God gave to these people only pointed out that they were unrighteous. And then chapter 3 opens with a really straightforward conclusion. Everybody is unrighteous when they stand before God and try to do so on their own merit. When you try to say, God, here I am, I'm good, aren't I? You're going to learn quickly the answer is no. That's what chapter three starts with. Everybody is in a hopeless situation when they consider judgment day and their own goodness. Right. That's it. If I'm saying, am I good enough that one day I'll be able to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I was pretty good one night. Don't go there. Don't go there. Not a single man, woman, boy, or girl is going to be able to say, God, you should let me into your glorious kingdom and let me dwell in your glorious presence because I'm pretty good. It's just not going to pay off on the day of judgment. And that brings us to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Verse 19, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. And and we have seen that Jesus is our only hope in Mark 10, We saw that Jesus is our only hope because of his cross and the ransom he paid there. And we saw in John 3 that Jesus is our only hope because of his cross and the rebirth made possible there. And now in Romans 3, starting in verse 19, we're going to see Jesus is our only hope because Jesus justifies hopeless sinners. Because Jesus justifies hopeless sinners. And I'm going to ask, if you're able, you'd stand in honor of God's word. As I read from Romans 3.19 through verse 26. And Paul, inspired by God, writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God, as we once more look at at what your son has accomplished for us and consider our hope, God, use your word to drive out hopelessness. Or if there's someone here this morning who who came thinking they could be right in their own merit before you, I pray that, that you would help them see the hopelessness of that and then drive it out with the good news about what Jesus has done. And Lord, I I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that as we look at this word, Lord, that that we would have greater hope as we are reminded that, that we have this incredible gift from Christ, that you would strengthen our faith with your word today. And I pray that you would encourage us to take that word to others as we see it as the only source of hope in a hopeless world. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus is our only hope. And we see that here, Jesus is our only hope because Jesus justifies hopeless sinners. Jesus justifies hopeless sinners. After he concludes that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's what he concludes. So nobody's going to stand right before God by keeping the rules, Paul describes how Jesus becomes hope for those hopeless people, which was everyone, right? And he begins in verses 21 and 22 by showing us that Jesus is our only hope, and that hope is new covenant hope. That hope is a new covenant hope. And let me show you what I mean by a new covenant hope. Verses 21 and 22, Paul writes that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, even though the law and prophets bear witness to it, and that that righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, the law represented the old covenant, right? That's Moses and the law, the old covenant. And God made a covenant with Israel. He called the special people out of the pagan Chaldeans, and said, you're going to be my people, and to be my people and enjoy being my people, you're going to obey these commands. In these commands is joy, the blessings. The blessings all come when you keep these commands. He gave them that law so they could know him, enjoy him as his people in his presence. That was God's instruction for old covenant joy. The problem was, Nobody got those blessings and that joy because nobody kept that law. Right? So, Paul explained in that first part of chapter 3 not even the old covenant people could ever be right with God by keeping the rules, the law, because in their heart they were unrighteous. You know, the law said, what? It says, no other gods. And they build these idols and they worship Baal and God says no worship through images. They they worship cow statues and God says no murder. King after king in Israel murders people. I mean, you get the point when you're unrighteous. The law simply says you're unrighteous. That's what it does. And that means that man is only going to be right in God's eyes if righteousness comes from outside of man. Because what's inside of man makes him break the law, shows that he's unrighteous. It's going to have to come from outside of him. So mankind needs what Martin Luther called alien righteousness. And that's not little green men, that just means from outside. Right? Righteousness from the outside is what we need. According to Paul, that's exactly what happened. That's what verse 21 and 22 say. The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from God the law. The law demanded righteousness from inside of you. It said, here's the rule, dig deep and keep it. And Paul says, but something more wonderful has happened because you couldn't keep the law. It was made manifest the righteousness of God apart from the law. The righteousness of God showed up. Man couldn't be righteous. So God's righteousness came to man from the outside. You know, the Old Covenant was made with a very certain ethnic people who lived in the Middle East, and the Old Covenant blessings were going to be theirs if they obeyed the law. But this New Covenant, there's a New Covenant that's this manifestation, this revealing of the law of God from the outside. This New Covenant, it has blessings that's for everybody, right? I mean, does Paul use the word all here? He does, doesn't he? So everybody who comes to Christ through faith, Everybody under this new covenant can receive this outside of us righteousness from God. And because Paul says it's, it's through faith in Jesus Christ, we know this righteousness that comes is Christ's righteousness. Right? You're trusting in Him to get the righteousness of God. Well, He must be the one bringing it. Right? So, what Christ does brings the righteousness of God and it offers it to man. So instead of law that makes you keep it based on righteousness that's in you, since there's no righteousness in you, that's bad news. God has the righteousness come from outside of you through Christ Jesus. And that's the new covenant he makes. The old covenant had to do with keep the rules based on what's in you. The new covenant says, okay, you didn't. I'm bringing it. Trust me. Right? So this is a new covenant hope that Jesus brings. But Jesus is also our only hope with a hope that is made sure at the cross. A hope that is made sure at the cross. In, in verse 23, Paul reminds us that everybody needs righteousness that comes, the righteousness of God coming through Christ. A lot of you have memorized this verse, right? Romans three twenty-three: that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. That means we all need this righteousness from the outside of us. We all need it. But then in verse 24, Paul explains that, that the only way that all, that anybody can get it, is that this righteousness is ours only if we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I tell you what, there's a mouthful there, isn't it? Sometimes when you're studying Paul, the best way to get through one of these long explanations of theology is to start at the end and work backwards. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. I'm going to break the verse into two pieces and look at the last part first. So starting at the end, what do we see? We see that that faith that we already mentioned, that faith in Jesus bringing the righteousness of God, whatever else is true, this is received by faith. This righteousness of God is received by faith. And then we move backwards and we see that that it's what we receive. What we receive as this gift that God gives us by faith is redemption in Christ offered to us as a propitiation by his blood. Wow. Wow. Redemption by propitiation. Now that word propitiation is probably not one that any of you used in a sentence this week. Right. We don't go around propitiating. So we need to look at that. And before we to, but before we look at that, we, we need to just say, OK, before I try to look at the dictionary for a definition, what does Paul say about it? Right. Well, one thing he says is that this propitiation is by the blood of Jesus offered up by God as a gift of grace. By the blood of Jesus offered as a gift of grace, that means he's talking about the cross, doesn't it? If we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the blood shed on the cross. And if we say it's God offering up Jesus as the blood shed on the cross, we're talking about the sacrifice of the sinless lamb of God on the cross. So whatever propitiation is, it's accomplished when Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And second thing Paul says is, when Jesus offers himself as that sacrifice, this propitiation involves redemption. So Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross, and we are redeemed. Jesus pays the price to get us out of something. That's what redemption means. So propitiation happens when the Son of God is sacrificed in the place of sinners, and that sacrifice buys them out of something. So whatever else propitiation is, we know this. It describes how the shed blood of Jesus paid the price to free us from the bondage and the penalty of sin. That's what we're freed from. So propitiation takes what we we deserve, the punishment and the, the bondage we're under in sin, and, and, and it takes that away as Christ shed his blood. And that's exactly what propitiation means. It's a complicated word, but we, we can really get our arms around it if we let the Old Testament help us a little bit. The word Paul uses that's translated as propitiation, and I, we're not even going to talk about what the Greek is, it's the same word that the Greek Old Testament the Greek translation of the Old Testament used to translate mercy seat. Right? There's the Ark of the Covenant. It's got the Ten Commandments. Moses' staffed it, but it in the Ark of the Covenant. Above it is a mercy seat. And the priest would come in and put the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Right? Matter of fact, if you have a Christian standard Bible, it actually uses the word mercy seat in the translation there. So in the temple, the mercy seat is the place on top of the ark with the law under it. So when the mercy seat has nothing in it, right, it's as though God looks down on it and he sees through the seat to those commandments, those laws. And he thinks of people. And as he sees laws, what's he got to do? He's got to judge them because they're all unrighteous if he sees the law. But then the priest comes along and he pours the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And now God looks down and he no longer sees that law. Instead, he sees the shed blood of the sacrifice. And he holds no wrath against anyone for the law because the blood has covered the disobedience to the commandments. The blood keeps God from seeing the sins of his people is what the picture is. And that's what propitiation is. There's this sin from within us as we break God's commands. And and God looks at us and says, they've got to be punished for this because God is righteous. He can't let it go unpunished. But when he looks at us and instead sees the blood... Of Christ, he doesn't get to the place where he sees our sin anymore because he sees sins paid for by the shed blood and you can't get to the guilt anymore because the blood is in the way. The book of Hebrews tells us the blood of the animal sacrifices in the temple never got the job done. Paul tells us right here, the blood of Jesus did. The blood of Jesus got the job done. What that boils down to is this. That Jesus is our only hope, and the hope that we have in Christ was because he shed his blood on the cross to redeem us. So Jesus is our only hope, and that's a new covenant hope made sure at the cross. We also see that Jesus is our only hope, and that hope comes to us as justification. It's as though, you know, it's not enough we propitiate, now we have to justify right, we've got those those big theology words, but they're so important. They are so important here. Everywhere you read the words, in this passage we just read, one thing that helps is to do this. Everywhere you read the word righteousness, or just, or justified, or justifier, remember you're reading the same root word. It's the same basic word, just modified based on its place in the sentence, right? So to be righteous is to be just. To be a justifier is to make righteous. To be justified is to be made righteous, right? So Paul's big point here in this whole passage is, The law said you need to be righteous from the inside, but no, you couldn't do that. So God's righteousness came from the outside, and Christ, on the cross, made it so that that if you trust in what Christ did, his blood protects you from God seeing your unrighteousness. Right? He's already said that. He's already said that. The, The law demanded that, and you weren't doing it, and Christ was righteous, and then what he says is, When God looks at that blood and doesn't see your unrighteousness anymore. He sees you as righteous. He justifies you. He sees you as righteous. Christ was perfectly righteous. So when it is Christ who stands between you and the judgment of God. God sees you as righteous. He justifies you. Look at how this plays out in the passage. In verse 21 to 22, it is the righteousness of God that has been made manifest for all who believe. In verse 23 to 24, those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, those who are unrighteous, are justified. They are made righteous. Then in verse 25, it is God's righteousness revealed. The reason it was revealed is because God had already passed over former sins. God didn't strike dead and send to hell everyone in the Old Testament who ever sinned, right? I mean, he could have, should have, but he didn't. I mean, why are Abraham and Moses not in eternal torment? And the answer is, because God always planned to pay for their sins in Christ on the cross, right? So everything he did in Jesus looks back at the Old Testament and said, that's how he did it. That's how he saved those people in the Old Testament. He was always teaching them about what Jesus was going to do, and then Jesus did it for them. But then in the next verse, it says, oh, by the way, not just for them, it's God's righteousness now so that he can be shown to be righteous in not punishing sinners and making them righteous. In other words, How does God let you free from the punishment and the burden of sin? How could God do that? That wouldn't be right, right? If if a good judge sees a criminal in front of him and says, oh, you just go free. I don't care. We'd say that's a bad judge. Well, God's a good judge. God can't just say, oh, just forget about it. Boys will be boys. God can't do that. So how does God let us go free? And the answer is what Christ did. And God gets to be a good judge, just, and the justifier, the one who says, I'm calling you righteous, even though in your heart you haven't been. Right? The big deal is that that when we receive Christ's propitiating work by faith, God looks at us in our unrighteousness. He only sees the sacrifice of his righteous son. And suddenly... We're not unrighteous anymore. We're called righteous because Jesus is there. Because Jesus is there. He is our only hope, and that hope comes as as, as we are declared righteous, as we are justified. Friends, the application of this is so big. It means this nobody should ever look to God for a second chance. Do you know what a second chance would get you? A second chance to fail again and to deserve even more punishment. I don't want a God of second chances. Because I'm bad at second chances. I could blow the third chance. I don't want that. I just want to look to Christ and be declared just. So we don't need a second chance God. We need a justifying God. It also means this it means if you're a Christian here this morning, the shame and the guilt of your sin are not yours to carry anymore. So don't. Jesus took it. He really took it on the cross. You don't own it anymore. So don't go around with that hang dog look because you have blown it again. Go to the cross. Don't try to carry it yourself this time. It didn't work last time. Go to the cross. You don't own the guilt and shame anymore. It also means that you can forgive other people. If the Almighty God could go to all this trouble to declare you righteous, He can do it for other people too, and you can look at them and forgive them too. It means you can forgive other people. All that because of what Christ did justifying sinners like me. Justification is glorious. And I hope you can see that. Jesus is our only hope. And he's a new covenant hope made sure at the cross that comes to us as justification. And Jesus is our only hope and that that hope is ours by grace through faith. It is ours by grace through faith. We've talked about this all along as we've been looking at this, but it bears repeating. In verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus to all who believe. What do you do to deserve the righteousness of Christ? The righteousness of God through Christ. Christ comes offering the righteousness of God. What do you got to give him in return? Nothing. You believe that he came and he's given you the righteousness of God. That's what you do. Verse 24 and 25. Propitiation bought redemption is by his grace as a gift. That's like it comes as a gift gift. Right. It's just a gift. And it's to be received by who? How? By faith. By faith. You receive a gift by verse 20. I mean, he's the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is entirely a gift of God's grace, and a gift of grace can only be received by faith. I'll cheat and look ahead a little bit. If we looked at Romans 4, 16, Paul writes there, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. The whole reason, Paul says, that he keeps saying it's by faith is because if it's a gift, that's the only way it can be received. If there is anything you give God back for the grace of his righteousness, it's not grace. If it's a contract, if it's a deal, if it's an exchange, it's not grace. How many of you got a paycheck recently and thought, oh, the grace of my employer to give me such a gift? You didn't, right? Because you did something to earn it. You did something to earn it. God's grace in justifying sinners is not that way. He just says, believe I did it. Believe I've done that and I'm, I'm standing here offering it for you. Trust me. Trust me. You can't depend on your law keeping or your good works in the first place. So you certainly can't re- depend on them in the second place when the righteousness of God appears by grace. There's something though we do need to be clear on here. Faith is not the cash money we give God in exchange for grace. It's not. It's not we give God faith, God gives us grace. Faith is not something good that we do for God that he rewards us for. Faith is not you linking arms with God. Faith is you leaning on the everlasting arms. When we speak of belief or trust or faith, we are never describing something that makes us good people. I'm not one of the good people because I exercised faith. Faith is me saying I'm not one of the good people, but I'm leaning on the only good one that ever was. When we declare that we've come to the place where we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are sinful rebels... Beyond any cure in and of ourselves, when we come to that place, when we realize that there is nothing we can bring in our hands to the throne of God to make us right with him. When we come to that place and we say, I'm trusting just in you, Jesus. I'm just going to trust in you, Jesus. That's faith. That is faith. That is that, that poor sinner standing on the street corner, lifting up his voice saying, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's faith. And Jesus is our only hope, and that hope is ours by grace as a gift to be received by faith. Now, now, obedience does have a place. I'm going to be sure we, we don't lose that. Obedience has its place, but it's on the other side of the equation. We don't obey in order to receive grace. We receive grace by faith, and once we receive that grace by faith, it is the greatest joy of our hearts to keep the commands of the Lord. Once you receive the gift of God by grace, you you obey because why wouldn't you? The greatest problem you ever had in life has been solved by this great and wonderful God who says, if you want to enjoy more of me, just obey me. Why wouldn't you obey him? You don't obey him to earn his favor. His favor was given. You obey him because you've received his favor and you can trust him for every other good thing too, so you keep his word. Jesus is our only hope. A new covenant hope made sure at the cross that comes as justification. It's ours by grace through faith. And friends, that's the gospel. That is good news. That is good news. And we live in a world full of bad news. It is just chuck full of bad news wars, kidnappings, slavery, poverty. I mean, those young ladies in that survey aren't necessarily wrong to be hopeless if they don't have Jesus. This is a hopeless world. But you don't have to be hopeless in this world. You don't have to be. Christ at the cross purchased hope for you. And all you've got to do is recognize that you can't earn the favor of God and accept what Christ did for you. Believe that he paid for your sins on that cross. And has set you free from the power, the penalty, and someday even the presence of sin in your life. Just believe and be saved. And Saint, we've got the word of hope. We have the word of hope. The question is, are we going to hide it under a bushel? Are we going to do that? No, that's the right answer, right? Are we going to do that? I mean, we've got the word of hope, and the world out there is hopeless. We've got the good news to a world that is overwhelmed by bad news. What are we going to do about it? Well, if you've got hopeless family, friends, neighbors, or coworkers, offer them some hope. Offer them Jesus. Offer them Jesus. Invite them to come to a Good Friday or a sunrise service. Invite them to come any Sunday. We're going to talk about Jesus here every Sunday. Or just, you just go tell them. If you think, well, I don't know all the words, take one of those cute little Easter tracks with you. It's got the words written in it. Go offer hope to the hopeless people you know. And you think, well, that just doesn't even seem enough. You're ready to do that, but you want to do more. Well, I've just told you about how through our North American Mission Board, you can, go, you can go spread hope all across North America, including Canada. You can go spread hope over North America. You can give, you can go, you can pray. And you say, well, that's just not enough. Well, maybe the Lord's calling you to go be an overseas missionary. Or maybe he's at least calling you to give to support overseas missions. Or maybe go on one of those overseas serve trips. I, I don't know, but, but friends, we've got hope. Hope that that gets to other people only as we tell them about the hope that can be theirs in Christ. No one ever stumbles into the gospel, do they? I mean, have you ever met someone who's never heard the word of Jesus from any Christian and suddenly just understood it? Never heard the word about Jesus, but suddenly just got the gospel? No, you haven't. Of course not. Right? Right? It only comes as we share this hope. so Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be in the hope peddling business. Good news? We don't have to take any cash because it's free. It's free to all who will believe. So let's be about that work. Let me pray for us. Father, what a good word. What an incredible word about the hope that is ours in Christ. Lord, we, we look around us in this world and we do see the hopelessness. But God, I, I thank you, as I'm sure my brothers and sisters in Christ do this morning, I thank you that, that I am not hopeless because of your son. And Lord, I pray that, that you would be with those of us who have this hope that we would go out and we would share it. That, that we would... Risk reputation, that we would risk friendship, that we would risk what, what finances, that we would risk whatever it takes to get the word of hope to a lost and hopeless world. And Lord, I, I pray for the one who came in here this morning who may have thought that they were okay with you because they're good enough. Well, I pray that the, the message of your word has shown them that they are not good enough but that there's still hope to be had in Jesus, and I pray that they would believe this morning and be rescued, be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.